This is an ABC podcast. Today, infectious disease, global health and the World Health Organisation. Well, it's official. The World Health Organisation has now declared the coronavirus a pandemic. From epidemic to pandemic. This is the defining global health crisis of our time. The days, weeks and months ahead will be a test of our resolve. For over 60 years, the World Health Organization has been the preeminent international health organization. But today, questions are being asked about its response to infectious diseases like SARS, Ebola and the coronavirus. And with organizations like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, UNAIDS, UNICEF and Doctors Without Borders, now leading the way in medical research, is an organization like the WHO still needed? Hello, this is Rear Vision on RN. I'm Annabelle Quince. Considering the current spread of the coronavirus, we revisit a program from 2015 where we trace the development of global health and ask who is best placed to respond to an infectious disease outbreak. The story of global health begins in the 19th century with trade and the spread of diseases like cholera and smallpox. But it wasn't until the 20th century that the League of Nations established the first global health organisation. And it was from this organisation that the WHO emerged after World War II. Jeremy Ude is an Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Minnesota. Well, the World Health Organization emerges really out of the ashes of the League of Nations. So as the League of Nations is ending and the United Nations is developing, one of the first things that they do is they want to recreate some sort of international health organization. So the first of the UN specialized agencies that they actually finish the constitution and put it out for a vote is actually the World Health Organization. And there's this sense that health is this vital, important element of what the international community can do. It's something that's a very concrete way of having this new United Nations organization having a positive effect on people's daily lives. What's somewhat interesting or ironic is that it takes almost two years to actually ratify it because even at this early stage in the the mid-1940s, there's a real concern about what sort of a possible political role the World Health Organization could have. There are accusations from both both sides in in the developing Cold War that the other side was going to use this as a way of trying to spread its particular brand of ideology or some sort of messaging like that. So Even from its earliest beginnings, we start to see a political element coming into the World Health Organization. According to Kelly Lee, the author of Globalization of Health, the mandate of this new health organization was quite ambitious. Well, WHO was created a few years after the Second World War, so 1948 was finally created. And the original designers wanted the new organization to have quite an ambitious mandate. So its constitution, it says that its objective is the attainment by all peoples of the highest possible level of health. So it's a pretty ambitious mandate. And if that wasn't ambitious enough, the designers defined health as, and this is quite a famous definition, a state of complete physical, mental and social well-being, and not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. So I guess the founders were thinking in a way, in a forward way, and thinking that health is not just about curing diseases, but it was about well-being as a whole. And so WHO was tasked with that challenge of bringing that vision to reality. In 1902, the United States founded PAHO, the Pan-American Health Organization, as a regional body to improve the health of people in the Americas. 
The WHO incorporated the structure of this regional body when it was established in 1948. Sarah Davis is the author of The Global Politics of Health. Anyone who's been watching the Ebola outbreak would see that there's a lot of discussion about the African Regional Office of WHO and the World Health Organization and Geneva headquarters. And, well, are they the same thing? They are and they aren't. And this is back to what we had at the end of World War II and to some extent that pan-American health organization that I was talking about that was developed in the early 1900s. There was a decision that was made, well, in particular, the United States was quite strong on this, that they wanted to keep PAHO, P-A-H-O. They wanted to keep this regional organisation in place. They'd funded it for 40 plus years. It was working for them. It was assisting with their desire to have strong relationships with South America. And they didn't want that to go. So the decision was, well, we will develop replica regional organisations. And that was what happened. So you had six regional offices, which still exist today. And they have their own assembly. So governments that are members of those regional offices meet every year, once a year, and they decide they have their own budgets. They have also country office representation. So there are, if a country needs that extra assistance or wants to have that closer relationship, they can also opt to have a WHO designated country office representative located in the country to provide very close specific advice. So an example of that in our region would be in Indonesia, you have a Sierra representative based with an office located very close to the Indonesian Ministry of Health. And their role is to provide assistance, to have that sort of backup role. And there are lots of debate about whether or not this leads to duplication of the type of work that the headquarters could be doing or should be doing. There is inevitable politics around who gets to be director general of the regional office and who are they going to listen to in terms of advice? Who do they feel most obliged to? The the countries that are part of that regional office or their headquarters, which they also are meant to work with and function with. And again, you know, you saw through the Cold War a lot of politics associated with how these offices would work and how they would function. And that was one of the big reform drives in the late 1990s. There was this effort to say, we've got to streamline this, we've got to address this. And I think what will happen after the Ebola outbreak is there's going to be more discussion about how to further reform that relationship between headquarters and regional offices again. So what were the main aims of the WHO during its first 30 years? Initially, right after the Second World War, it was focused on post-war reconstruction and a lot of the disease outbreaks, so just controlling those outbreaks, rebuilding health systems. The organisation then went on to focus on what they called the big six target areas, and those were malaria, tuberculosis, sexually transmitted diseases, maternal and child health, environmental sanitation and nutrition. So those are really big areas in themselves, but that's sort of what the organization focused on. And then as time went on, even those were not really capturing the full breadth of the health issues that member states faced. And then you see again another widening of the agenda to more longer term strategies to deal with a number of health conditions. Over this period of time, this is the first 30 years of the organization's life, membership grew, the funding was pretty steady, and the scope of the work continued to grow. 
a bit of a golden age for WHO. It took on some mass disease campaigns. The most famous was the smallpox eradication program, which was a great success. And some say the biggest achievement of the 20th century. But other mass disease programs not so successful, the malaria eradication program. And of course, we still battle the disease today, 60 years on. What was really important about the smallpox eradication was the fact it was the first example that you had where they were able to overcome those political regional office divisions and they were able to coordinate around a particular area that was going to make an enormous difference to people's lives. And they were able to do it across the Cold War sort of divide. They had complete support of the communist bloc as well as of, you know, the more sort of capitalist countries, democratic countries. And what it also showed was that the World Health Organization had the best access. It had the best access if you look at it in terms of vertical and horizontal. It had access from the village through its country office function. So it was it was the one who was trusted to be able to talk to every Ministry of Health and it also had that connection straight up so it could, country offices were linked into regional offices, were linked into headquarters. Then across horizontally you had the World Health Organization was working across countries, you know, they were working across war zones and they were able to access technical expertise as well as political expertise in the smallpox eradication. With the 1970s, we start to see the World Health Organization becoming a bit more more activist, I guess you could say. Part of that may be emerging out of the coming success that we have with the smallpox eradication campaign, that we're starting to see that these international efforts are coming to some fruition. But we also see, see changes within the World Health Organization itself. We have a new director general, Halfton Mahler, who takes a takes a perspective that, that we don't want to just see health as something that's going to benefit an individual, but that this is something that we want to take a very proactive step in trying to, to recognize. And so there's this move in the late 1970s called Health for All by 2000. And the thinking is that through this program, what the World Health Organization would be able to do in consultation with these national governments is to make sure that everyone had access to primary health care. And it also entailed an expansion of the idea of this is what the responsibility of a national government is to the health of its citizenry. And it's a startling move um, when the, this resolution passes in 1978. There's a lot of international support for it initially, but then there's also almost immediately there's some pushback, particularly from the United States, some fears that this was trying to impose a certain view of healthcare. This was trying to give more of an advantage to what the Soviets wanted to do. The Alma-Ata Declaration around health for all was seen as being a program that was too expansive. It was one that was going to be costly. And it was one that the United States in particular, but other countries as well, felt that this was just so far removed from what the United States was doing at its own national level. This idea of universal healthcare coverage, this idea of access to medicines, which was going to potentially affect the United States, which has a very big pharmaceutical industry. These sorts of things were starting to cause disagreements between, you know, a key funding donor state and and the WHO secretariat. And so this is what you start to see is these countries start to assert very strongly, well, I will fund extra budgetary programs, I'll fund the things that I think you should be doing, and I will not fund the things that I don't think you should be doing. 
And the United States had another avenue to go to. They had the World Bank, they had UNICEF. And, you know, UNICEF was starting to really mobilise and engage with healthcare delivery programs because they had staff on the ground. They could do humanitarian, this sort of humanitarian access. And then you also had the World Bank, which was, you know, moving very much into a particular model of what it thought health funding should look like and should be in developing countries. At the same time, the world faced the spread of a new and deadly infectious disease, HIV-AIDS. WHO uh, was the obvious organisation to step up and organise an international response to HIV-AIDS, and, and it did. Very quickly set up a, an infrastructure. There were a global AIDS program, quickly rolled out protocols and all sorts of policy measures, collaborated with countries. The criticisms were that the organization was too, still too focused on the biomedical and how it needed to adapt to a world where diseases such as HIVAs were emerging for not just biomedical reasons, but for a lot of other structural reasons and spreading so quickly. Uh, and globalization. Globalization was creating a new world. And I think WHO at the time was, was ill-equipped to deal with it. Part of what you also see in the emergence of HIV AIDS is there's an assumption that it's being well taken care of. You can go back into the archives and look at some of the conversations and some of the documentation that was coming out in 83, 84, 85, and you see World Health Organization officials who are basically saying, we don't really have to worry about this because this is mostly an issue that affects developed countries and they're, they're doing a really good job responding. So they kind of shut their eyes to what was going on with HIV AIDS. And when you start to see people try to challenge the World Health Organization, people like Jonathan Mann starting to challenge and saying, actually, we need to be doing more. And this isn't really a disease that's just affecting these really wealthy countries, but that we're starting to see it take root in places like particularly in sub-Saharan Africa and other regions of the world that they don't have the healthcare systems that are able to deal with this. There was a lot of pushback that you're not going through the right channels. So in some respects, the bureaucratic rigidity that had come into place by the mid-1980s made the organization unwilling and unable to respond as we start to see some sort of challenge develop with HIV AIDS. So by the time they do start to figure out, oh, we need to be doing something, we need to respond, they've left themselves completely flat-footed, they've lost a lot of the international esteem, and there's a, a move to basically take HIV AIDS out of the purview of the World Health Organization and create a new organization, which becomes UNAIDS. You're listening to Rear Vision. I'm Annabelle Quince, and today we're tracing the story of the World Health Organization. UNAIDS was established in 1994 and was just one of a number of agencies that had begun to challenge the WHO's position as the preeminent international health organization. If we move up to sort of the 1990s period, we're starting to see UNICEF is still taking on very much, so that's the United Nations Children's Emergency Fund, which doesn't rely upon the sort of access contribution funds in the same way that other UN agencies do. So they have a lot more autonomy with their funding. And while the World Bank was starting to emerge very strongly in the context of post-Cold War, there was a lot of new technical development assistant programs that were being created. There was these poverty alleviation strategies that the World Bank was becoming associated with, which was very specific types of policy advice about what was good governance and how big government needed to be. And it was reaching into areas such as education and health 
And then you also started to have in the late 1990s, you had philanthropic organisations. You always had in health had important philanthropic organisations with the Small Post Eradication, Rockefeller Foundation was very, very important. In a way, modelling on the Rockefeller Foundation, you started to have individuals such as Bill Gates start to emerge with the Bill and Melinda Gates Fund. You saw the government starting to independently align themselves with private companies that may be private insurance or pharmaceutical companies. So we started to call them public-private partnerships. And these partnerships were, again, around specific areas of disease or specific areas of health policy that they felt that they could do immediate direct interventions with to make a difference. And they felt it would cut through sort of those, the WHO organisation, the WHO structure process. But they also thought it would be more financially viable. And it was also emerging at a time where there was a lot more interest in effectiveness of aid this idea that we needed to be a lot more engaged with the idea that aid was not something that you expected to keep providing to a country forever. You had to help them develop a structure to be able to move beyond aid. And a lot of these public-private partnerships were also about trying to create these sorts of incentive programs where countries would receive short-term upbursts of investment in particular areas and would be able to either generate business or generate income and keep it going themselves. It was a period when the assessed contributions of WHO had been frozen for a number of years. So in real terms, you know, the budget was, was shrinking. And so the organization was increasingly reliant on what are known as extra budgetary funds or voluntary contributions, usually given by a small number of countries and increasingly by foundations and other charitable bodies. And that balance between the sort of assessed contributions that states must pay based on its population and, and GDP and the voluntary contributions, that shifted increasingly to voluntary, which meant that WHO had less and less control over its own budget. My recollection is in the 90s, there was a 50-50 split. So that was quite a shock to find that half of WHO's budget was actually controlled by the donors themselves, who of course would earmark those voluntary contributions for specific purposes, whether it's HIV AIDS or some other program. Today, I understand that the extra budgetary funds or voluntary contributions now represent 75% of WHO's budget. And that raises all sorts of questions about who actually is setting the agenda in WHO. Is it WHO itself and its member states? Or is it the donors who are able to call the tune because they pay the piper. I would argue one of the most important things that happened at the end of the 1990s was the person who was given the director generalship at the time, and that was Dr. Gro Harlan Brundtland. She was a Norwegian prime minister, and she was a medical professional before that, And she, had, but she'd had a lot of experience working with the United Nations agencies and she'd been part of the Environment Sustainability Development Program in the 1980s. And so she was very familiar with the UN organisation. She was familiar with the medical expertise and arguments that could often stymie progress within the World Health Organisation. Not everyone was happy with the direction that who was heading in, even those who supported who saw that it was in trouble and didn't necessarily like the way in which health, health advice, health donors were starting to fragment. And so she came in with a big reform agenda, a reform agenda for whose structure, a reform agenda for whose budget and a reform agenda for what who stood for. And 
This all happened at the same time that you had the World Health Organization's international health regulations were undergoing revision. In 1995, the World Health Assembly, which is the meeting of member states, said, actually, we've had outbreaks of bubonic plague in, in Peru and India. We've had this Ebola hemorrhagic fever has been erupting since the 1970s. We've got HIV AIDS. We've got the threat of a pandemic influenza at some point, and we don't have a regulation that's up to date enough to be able to handle this. We need to revise it. We need to revise the processes around quarantine and what role, function, who can have. And so that had been agreed in 1995, and that had been a very difficult process to get that agreement, but those outbreaks had helped it happen. And in the early 2000s, they started to do different things. They started to form partnerships with the with the Canadian Public Health Agency to develop a surveillance, an internet surveillance platform. And they would receive reports of disease outbreaks anywhere around the world. And who headquarters would receive those outbreaks and would contact the country and say, what's happening? Do you need assistance? That process was formally approved in 2001 in the World Health Assembly. That was happening, and then you had SARS. There have now been 11 confirmed and 11 suspected cases of the bird flu in Hong Kong, most since November. Three of the 22 have died. What was important about the outbreak of SARS in the World Health Organization at the time was you had Dr. Brundtland, who was not particularly afraid to be able to call on states and say, you're not reporting, you need to be reporting. They were very effective at using public communication. Their surveillance platform, the Global Public Health Information Network, was one of the first ones to pick up that there was this strange pneumonia that was happening in southern China that couldn't be accounted for in terms of what it was. And then you also had this development of this network of disease outbreak specialists that was being coordinated and assisted with the World Health Organization at the time called GOAN. And they were called upon to be able to provide advice very quickly to countries who were being affected by this strange pneumonia and needed to be able to identify it quickly. This role, this this intimate one-on-one role that who people had been playing in identifying and working to respond to this disease elevated WHO's status overnight and it reminded people what it could do. It was back to smallpox again, what it could do in terms of its vertical and horizontal access. In 2009, when swine flu emerged, the WHO had new reporting guidelines and a new Director-General. The swine flu outbreak is claiming more victims. There have been another three deaths in Mexico and dozens more confirmed cases around the world. Influenza is a very difficult issue to deal with. So it's the worst case scenario when you ever you think about a global pandemic. Influenza is highly contagious. And if there's a case of a highly pathogenic strain of the influenza, this would be the worst case scenario. So WHO had been monitoring, of course, influenza, particularly pandemic influenza for decades. And an outbreak pandemic influenza was overdue. So when we had H5N1, it was, oh dear, is this, is this it? Is this the big event? For the first time in four decades, the World Health Organization has declared a global flu pandemic. The world is now at the start of the 2009 influenza pandemic. 
The concern was really about, and the allegations were that pharmaceutical companies were having undue influence over the people who would actually make the decision whether or not the World Health Organization should declare this to be a public health emergency of international concern, and that they were doing this because they were interested in selling Tamiflu and selling flu vaccines and these sorts of things. And so the allegations were that the organization was being unduly influenced by these financial interests the pharmaceutical companies had. They did do a, an investigation afterwards, and the final outcome was that there had not been undue influence from these pharmaceutical companies, but there was also a recognition that the World Health Organization needs to do better to be more transparent and to, to make it very clear why they're declaring an emergency for a particular outbreak and who the people are that are getting involved in the, this process. So there aren't the opportunities to have some sort of, of conspiracy theory that it's Big Pharma or someone else who's trying to influence the World Health Organization in this way. You know, in retrospect, it's very easy to say WHO overreacted, it behaved, perhaps made wrong choices and alarmed people overly. But if it had turned out that it was a more serious influenza virus, I don't think it would have been people saying, well, WHO should have done less. It starts with flu-like symptoms. So most people don't think too much of the early stages of Ebola. The first cases emerge around December 2013. We get the first report from the World Health Organization in March of 2014 about these cases that had appeared in Guinea. But then even from, from that point on, even though we, we have an outbreak of Ebola, one of those diseases that when a country reports that to the World Health Organization, that's supposed to be a trigger that action needs to take place because of what we've seen in the past with its high fatality rate. Still, we see a lag in terms of its response Part of that may have been because they felt chastened by what happened with influenza, and so they were trying to be overly cautious. Part of it may have been that they just weren't getting the sort of information necessary, that the surveillance systems that were in Guinea, Sierra Leone, and Liberia weren't providing adequate information. There's also some reason to believe that there were some disagreements between the central office, the central office of the World Health Organization based in Geneva, and the regional office in Africa, and there were some clashes between those two offices. So some bureaucratic politics may have interrupted the flow of information or dissuaded the, the World Health Organization from declaring an emergency quite as quickly. This is going to be the next year or so trying to work out exactly what happened in terms of the relationship between the African regional office and headquarters in Geneva. Who knew what when? How were they responding to it? With hindsight, the argument is a disease outbreak like Ebola in Western Africa, particularly in those countries affected Guinea, which was undergoing a lot of political transition and instability. Liberia, which is going through transition to drawdown of the peacekeeping force that's there. Sierra Leone, poor, with a lot of significant problems in terms of its health capacity. These were very vulnerable countries. To be honest, I think the World Health Organization and Geneva knows the implications of them having responded in the way that they did. I think there probably was this sense of concern about being seen as overreacting a repeat of 2009. And so they acted on what they thought the science would tell them. And it's had this dramatic, terrible consequence. But we say this with hindsight now, and I'm always aware of that. I think there certainly is a, a knock-on effect. So WHO has been starved of resources for a long time. WHO really needs to think in a very different way. It's not going to be the centre of the universe for technical expertise. But what it can do is be a kind of the ultimate convener of this sort of information. 
WHO has been accused of being very, very slow and bureaucratic, and anyone who's worked with the organization probably would support that view. We saw that with the Ebola virus outbreak. And so it needs to learn how to be more nimble, to respond to information as it comes into the organization, but also to be able to assemble and distribute information. I think ultimately, in the end, what we do need is an organization that's funded properly. It's frankly foolish to, to have starved an organization that we all have a vested interest in. You know, maybe we want it to change, we want it to change quite fundamentally, but by starving it, we're actually creating a vacuum that we haven't filled. Kelly Lee, author of Globalization and Health. My other guests, Sarah Davis, author of The Global Politics of Health, and Jeremy Ude, who authored Global Health Governance. Today's sound engineer is Timothy Nicastri. I'm Annabelle Quince, and this is Rear Vision on RN. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.